0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.
1: If you would, the rest of you would stand for the reading of Scripture. Our Scripture reading comes from John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. I'll read through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight.
0: All right, you can be seated. John 19, 16 through 42, if you want a copy of God's Word to, in front of you, that would be really helpful. doesn't matter what I say, it matters what the Scriptures say, and so we want to uh, have our eyes on the Scriptures. In the M. Night Shyamalan movie, the Signs, Graham Hess is a retired priest. He left the ministry because he was angry at God over the death of his wife. didn't understand why his wife, who was killed by a drunk driver pinned against a tree and uh, just had to had lost his faith, had lost his desire for ministry, had lost his trust in God, and it seemed like life was falling apart. His brother lived with him, who was a, who was a failed baseball player, a power hitter, who, uh, who no longer could make it any longer, was living with him, and he had two kids as well in the movie. And one, his daughter has this, like, compulsive... Um, fear of germs where she drinks one sip of water and then leaves a glass so there's just glasses of water everywhere in their house and his son has this paralyzing asthma and it seems like everything is just working against him and he's become very angry at God until all of a sudden they start to see crop circles develop all around the world and particularly right there and it turns out there's an alien invasion this alien invasion is coming to earth and these aliens are coming after he and his family and they're holed up in the house right and uh, man, it just seems like things couldn't get any worse. Why is God doing this to them? And then there comes this moment where the alien captures the boy. And he's having this terrible asthmatic episode. And the alien is trying to spray poison gas to kill the boy. But the boy can't breathe. And then as Graham has to stand in there, it all clicks into his head. The things, the dying words that his wife had said. His, his brother's power hitting um, strength. All of the glasses of water around the room, his son's asthma. All of a sudden, it clicks in his mind that all of this has come together. All of these seemingly terrible things have come together to rescue his family. And it clicks in his head that he has heard that water is what dissolves the aliens. It, it's, it, it, they hate water. And so he cuts his brother-in-law loose, and all of these glasses of water end up, ended up being sprayed on the guy. He beats up the alien and his son is saved because he can't breathe. And so all of these things that had been working out in the movie, you have at the end, you have this kind of subtle signal as he puts on his priesthood robes at the end of the movie that his faith in God has been restored. And what looked like God was punishing him, what looked like was a complete disaster, ended up being the very thing. All of these random things ended up saving his family from the threat of the aliens. And likewise, what we have here in John chapter 19 is we have John standing at the foot of Jesus Christ's cross, and he is standing there giving eyewitness testimony that all of these things that have been happening through the Old Testament, all of these things that have been happening in the life and ministry of Jesus that seem totally random, are now coming together in perfect sequence to accomplish the salvation of humanity. And so we come to this point where this eyewitness, this John, is now, everything is clicking in his mind that all of these prophecies from the Old Testament, all these allusions to Old Testament symbols, as he's staring at the crucified Jesus, every word, every statement, every position, even the things that the soldiers are doing are all clicking into place and God has rigged the whole thing in order to bring about the salvation of mankind and we're at the very crossroads where all of these themes, all of these prophecies are coming true. In this moment, we have no less than 12 prophecies fulfilled in this short 26 verses. And John is going to pull it together. John doesn't do a lot of quoting from the Old Testament throughout his gospel. He does a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. But here he just relentlessly points out to us again and again how Jesus is the fulfillment, the saving power of God made manifest. And he's accomplishing it right here on the cross. So, we are at the very center point of all of human history as we go through our Gospel of John. This is the most significant event that we're going to look at this week and next week in all of human history. In fact, we mark our years by Christ. We are in 2020, 2020 B- AD, following Jesus, and there's BC. Like, this has literally split history. This is. The focal point, the funnel point of everything that has been going on in human history and the Old Testament tells us how God has done it. And that's what this is all about. All of scripture, all of history is meant to draw every human eye, every human heart to what John is witnessing and bearing witness to in this moment, in these, on this day in the first century. It all funnels right here. The most significant message I could preach to you today will come from this passage right here. The crucifixion and burial of the king. Remember earlier, Pilate confronted Jesus and said, are you a king? And Jesus said, you said that I am. And he said, well, why are your people turning on you? He said, if my kingdom is not of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, my, 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 my disciples would be fighting. But because they're not, it's because I have an otherworldly kingdom. The disciples of Jesus are not fighting because Jesus himself is bringing in an otherworldly kingdom. We looked at that last week. So we're going to break this into two parts. The crucifixion of the king in verses 16 through 20. Or I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, 16 through 30. And then we're, there's six parts that John uh, breaks his narrative into in, the, in that part. And then the second half, the burial of the king, 31 through 42, we're going to look at two breakdowns of that. So we're going to go very systematically through this because I want you to see what John is doing. But as we work through the system of this, I don't want you to lose in your mind the picture of Christ on the cross. When we're talking about crucifixion, we're talking about the fact that Jesus had been scourged. He had been, he had been whipped 39 times by a, what's called a, a, a cat of nine tails. And what it is, is it's these four, these nine strands of leather with pieces of bone and rock and metal. And Jesus had been struck across his backside all the way up and down with this thing. And those things would dig into the flesh. And as they ripped it back, he is literally shredded. He is literally a third of his body has been shredded by being uh, by being whipped in this way. And then what they have done is they have taken him and they have nailed him to a cross And they have driven nails through his wrists. You've ever hit your funny bone? Have you ever hit your funny bone, that nerve? Imagine a nail driven right through that nerve in your wrists. And now you're suspended from that and and nail through the feet. And he is up and down. He is pulling himself up in order to breathe. Because what crucifixion does to you is it suffocates you. When you're suspended from your arms, you can't exhale. So you must push up on the nail in your feet in order to to allow your chest cavity to be able to move enough for you to be able to exhale and inhale again, up and down every breath, transferring the weight of your body from the nail in in your feet to the nails in your hands, and every time shooting pains throughout your body, up and down on this Roman cross that's rough, when you've got literally your organs exposed and ribs exposed up and down, up and down every breath, he is crucified. He is standing there, this bloody pulp of a man. And John is standing there, and it's all clicking for him. What's happening in this moment? This looks like a brutal lynching of a criminal, but it's actually the payment for sin by the Son of God. And I want you not to miss that. As we look at this systematically, don't just look at At this, I want you to keep that picture in your mind. John is standing there at the foot of the cross giving testimony to what is happening. And look at first the crucifixion of the king. Verse 16. The king is first of all condemned with criminals. Verses 16 through 18. Look at this. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he is numbered with the sinners. He is numbered with the worst of the worst. Crucifixion was for only the worst of criminals. And Jesus is being crucified, not in some place of honor, publicly shamefully among those who have done the worst of the worst. Jesus is identifying with the worst of sinners. He is the central sinner. He's the featured sinner being executed in this moment. He is in the centerpiece. He is at the epicenter of the father's wrath. And perhaps he's maybe in Bar- Barabbas's place. Do you remember see that? Remember that from last week Barabbas was set free because Jesus Took his place. So perhaps this is where Barabbas, the terrorist, the murderer, the insurrectionist, the thief, was meant to be. Jesus is in his place, the central sinner, surrounded by sinners. Jesus himself identifies entirely with the worst of sinners. If you look at your life and you're deeply ashamed and feel deep guilt over your sin, Jesus is willing to be numbered with you. He's identified entirely with the worst of sinners. Jesus is on your cross. Bearing your sin, absorbing your wrath. The worst kind of wrath for the worst kind of sinners. In verses 19 through 22, we see that the king is exalted before all nations. Here's one of those poetic ironies here. Here's one of those, those, those strange little like features. that people, The people in the audience don't necessarily know what's going on. But those of us looking at this through the eyes of John... See the deeper, greater significance that's happening here. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. This was normal. You would put the crime of the person above their head. And then as you're crucifying them just outside the city gate, you're you're crucifying them essentially along the interstate. You want everyone coming into your city to know this is what happens when you break the rules. And so what they have is they're crucifying these, these criminals publicly at the entrance of the gate as a as just a a show of don't mess with us and they would put the crime above their head and here is what jesus is being crucified for many uh, jesus of nazareth king of the jews verse 20 many of the jews read this inscription for the place where jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in aramaic in latin and in greek so the chief priests of the jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the jews but right, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate, who's been pushed around all day, finally stands up and says, no. What I've written, I've written. And we see that in, uh, in Aramaic, the common language of the day, in Latin, the official Roman language, and in Greek, representing the fact that the king of the Jews is being proclaimed to all people. Jesus is being proclaimed to all nations. What was meant, ironically, to be a threat, like we don't want anyone to miss this, the reality is nobody's going to miss this, right? The king of the Jews is for all nations. This is written in fulfillment of Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Look at this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now that sounds glorious heavenly, right? He has been lifted up on a cross. He is being exalted. As king of the Jews. But not in the way that we would think. But this is exactly 700 years before Jesus. Verse 14. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred. Beyond human semblance. That his form. And his form beyond that. Of the children of mankind. Meaning that his exaltation. His his being lifted high. And lifted up. Will be as a quivering. Shredded. Human being that doesn't even look human anymore. His glorification is going to be on a cross, is what's predicted. Many were astonished with you, his appearance so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of men. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. John's picking this up. Wait a minute. The Messiah was going to be high and lifted up in a marred human form. And it is from that place that all of the nations would be sprinkled with his blood. Would be proclaimed among the nations. And that prophecy is coming true. John said this in John 8, 28, just a few chapters before. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Because there's going to be a sign over my head. Put there by Pilate, but ultimately put there by God. And I do nothing of my own authority. I speak just as the Father has taught me. Jesus had predicted in John chapter 12, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I'll be announced in all languages. When I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The ironic courage of Pilate proclaims to all the identity of Jesus in all of the relevant languages of the day Jesus will be proclaimed in all nations and is being proclaimed in all nations the king of the Jews look at verses 23 through 24 the king shamed fulfilling scripture look at verse 23 when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each, of, for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my garments among them and for they, but my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. So it was predicted in Psalm 22, which we read just a few minutes earlier, verse 18, that those who would execute the Messiah would divide up his garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now the four parts, his belt, his sandals, his head covering, and his outer robe. And then there was this fifth item that was of great value, woven in one piece. Everybody got a piece, but who's going to get that second piece? Who's going to get that and so they cast lots and so both prophecies of Psalm 22 are fulfilled a thousand years beforehand this was predicted that they would divide up the garments and cast lots for one of them It's perfectly orchestrated right here the king shamed crucified naked nothing left to his name the reason they divide those things up because nobody he's not coming back off of that cross he is giving it all He is losing everything, and He is being shamed to the uttermost on the cross. There is nothing covering Him. Remember back in the garden, humanity sinned and then felt shame and covered themselves up, right? Because in their sin, there was shame in their nakedness. Jesus now is bearing the shame of humanity in His nakedness on the cross for us, for all who would believe in Him. You see the the picture coming together? You see the puzzle pieces starting to fit together? Verses 25 through 27, the king decrees a superior family. This is fascinating. Look at this, verse 25. Just think about this for a moment. I won't go too far into this because I don't want to leave the cross, but Jesus does something very fascinating here. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary was a very common name back then. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which is John himself, John and these ladies are all that's left. And John is standing there at the cross. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. It's two things. One, it's amazing that on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for all of human sin, Jesus still is thinking about his mother's care. He is that kind of Jesus that he cares about individuals. It's not here in John, but one of the other gospels, Jesus gets into a conversation with one of the other thieves, right? And that thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, you'll be with me when you're in paradise, even on the cross, bearing the weight of God's wrath, he is extending grace to individuals. Father, forgive them. They don't know what, you're, what they're doing. And he still, in this moment, cares about his mother. But here's the second thing that I think maybe it would be easy to miss Jesus has four brothers and at least two sisters, according to Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 13. They're all probably grown at this point. And Jesus on the cross does not entrust his mother to his biological family. But to who? His spiritual family. So, spiritual family is superior to biological family. Right? Because from that day... The disciple took her into his own home the priority of the care of his mother was given to his spiritual family i think we as good american christians we love our families family values all that stuff important i don't want to downplay that but sometimes we use that as an excuse to not be as engaged in our spiritual family and that is not the way of jesus to be clear I might tomorrow spend my update video a little fleshing that out a little bit because as a youth pastor, I've seen this so much where biological family is used as a trump card to push and stiff arm and not be as engaged into our spiritual family, the superior family in a way that is unhealthy. Now, you can go unhealthy the other way, but I don't think that's our issue. And I think we do a disservice to both families. So isn't that fascinating? In this moment, Jesus hands off the care of his mother, not to his biological family, but to John, his spiritual family. And from that moment on, John takes her into his home. Look at verses 28 and 29. We see that the king thirsts, fulfilling scripture. Verse 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, and they put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus is mindful of Scripture, knowing that there's still a few boxes that need to be checked, and himself cries out genuinely, I thirst. Because he knows that he still has Scripture to fulfill. There's so many things that have been fulfilled along the way, but he still is checking the boxes. This is in fulfillment of Psalm sixty nine twenty one. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, a thousand years before Jesus, this would happen at his execution. And verse thirty, the king finishes his work, finishes his work, and dies. Verse thirty, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, "It is finished." It's one work, one word in Greek to tell us die. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word tetelestai means completed or accomplished. It's not the sense of Jesus going up there and going, well, I'm finished. As if it's a, a declaration of defeat. It's a declaration of victory. This is not, I'm finished, I'm overwhelmed, I quit, I'm out. This is, I have conquered, I'm victorious, the transaction is complete. And then he gives up his spirit. They didn't kill him, he gave his life. He gave his life. John says, uh, uh, Jesus says this, um, actually I have the wrong one here, the wrong scripture, but this is to fulfill Psalm twenty-two thirty-one, 31. The very last verse of Psalm 22, which is a beautiful description of the crucifixion of Jesus a thousand years before it happened, hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. It was described in Psalm twenty-two thirty-one. And the psalm concludes with this line. And they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Te telestai. He has done it. He has completed the transaction. He has drank the cup of wrath that the Father has given him. He has completed the redemption of his people. He has been a sufficient sacrifice this is the paid in full on the debt of human sin. This is the bill is over. The, the, the jail sentence is complete. You are free to go. This is tetelestai. It is the work is accomplished. It's complete. God received the sacrifice. There's no wrath left. It's gone. Tetelestai, completed, accomplished. John 17, 4. I glorified you on the earth. This is Jesus praying to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus calling out in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died of his own free will. He died not one minute too soon. Not leaving one penny of redemption unpaid. Fully paid, and then he gave up his spirit. He finishes his work, and he dies. Which then brings us to the burial of the king. In verses 31 through 42, I want to break this into two parts. First, the king is pierced, fulfilling scripture. Look at verse 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Because you smash their legs, they can no longer push up to breathe, and they suffocate, they die very quickly. You watch them suffocate for the next few minutes, and then it's over. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and on the other, who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. Now think about this for a moment. They're on either side of him, which means that they broke the legs of the one, walked past Jesus with the club and broke the legs of the other one. Now, if you're wanting to end the day, don't you just quickly, don't you, you don't waste the time to go around, right? They break the one, break the other. God orchestrated this, that they would do this weird thing. And then what happens here is they come to the middle one, the most inefficient way, right? Like to go around and then come back to the middle one. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified. But when they came to Jesus... They saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. This is so strange. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. You don't do that. That's breaking protocol. They're breaking protocol in two ways here. They didn't break the legs. They didn't need to, so I guess that's okay. They pierced his side. That's not what you do. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has bore witness. He's like, I'm telling you, I was there. This is John going, I'm telling you, this happened. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. So he's like, this is incredibly significant what happened here. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture. They who look on him whom they have pierced. So this, there's all kinds of scriptures going on right here. There's all kinds of Old Testament passages that are coming here. Let me just throw a bunch of them out to you. I think I put a list of them up there. I couldn't put all the text up there because it was too much. First of all, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury it the same day, for the hanged man is cursed by God. Jesus is being cursed by God on the cross and they need to take him down. So they actually are following scripture by wanting him taken down before nightfall. Now we also have the picture of the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, 46. The blood of the lamb, it shall be eaten. The lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. This is when the the angel of death was going to pass over and they had to take the blood of a perfect lamb and put it on the doorpost and then they had to bring the lamb inside and they had to consume it And here's what it says, it shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And that was to point to the day when Jesus would be on the cross and it would be his blood. And it's not the angel of death, but actually the wrath of God that would pass over those who are sprinkled with his blood by the lamb who does not have his bones broken. As they celebrated this again and again every year at Passover, Numbers 9, 12, they were to remember the unbroken part, the unbroken part of the lamb, because that was meant to be a pointer forward to redemption. God was putting these little nuggets so that they would see Jesus and recognize that God, his, God's redemption has always been pointing to Jesus and from Jesus. Numbers 9, 20, 9 12. They shall leave none of it until morning, now break any of its bones, according to the statute of the Passover, that they shall keep it. So John's prophecy in John 3 Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Passover Lamb who will give his life, the perfect one, who will shed his blood to forgive sins, so that the, the wrath will pass over, and he won't have his bones broken. and that will be a tie that will be a signal in your mind to look to this Lamb. Psalm 34:20, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Zechariah 12:10 and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on him on him whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn so there'll be a grief in looking at the cross but there'll also be that is how the grace is poured out according to Zechariah 12:10 he will pour out a spirit of grace and mercy as they mourn bitterly over the one who was crucified, right? It was my sin that held him there, and that deeply grieves me. And yet there's grace and mercy and joy in that my sin is dealt with there. Zechariah 12, 10. And then the fulfillment of Psalm twenty two, fourteen. I am poured out like water. What flowed from Jesus' body? Blood and water. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it is melted within my breast. He's the Passover lamb. He gives the blood for the sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the cleansing water comes from him as well. The angel of death passes over this Passover lamb. Blood and water flow from him. In the Old Testament, remember, they struck the rock, and the rock was split, and water came out. 1 Corinthians tells us that the rock was Christ, that the living water would come from the one who was struck, that one being Christ. And then look at verses 38 through 42. We see the king buried with appropriate honor. This is super surprising. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. Uh, One of the other Gospels says that Joseph was part of the ruling council. So he was was in the mix of this thing. He wasn't given consent, but he also wasn't brave enough to stick up for Jesus. So he's part of the elite here. But here at the death of Jesus, he now has the courage to go to Pilate, who just crucified Jesus and says, hey, can I honor that man? (laughs) It's a dangerous thing. He came and took the body away. Nicodemus also, you remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3, he came by night, the Pharisee came to Jesus, and Jesus challenged him on some things and said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was confused, and you really can't tell at the end of the conversation whether Nicodemus gets it, but look at this, verse 39, Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It's a lot of perfume. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a a tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid him there. It's in a garden. There's all of these spices and perfumes. And they're wrapping him in linen and putting him in in a tomb of honor. Normally, you would just roll him down into the valley of Gehenna Into the fire pit. You just throw them into the dump. Just discard the bodies. But Jesus is buried with honor. The reason that there's so much perfume and aloes, and why John is so specific to give you the weight, is that this is a king's burial. Nicodemus has gathered the supplies to go. This was a king who died. This was a king, and he's going to be buried with honor. Unlike any other criminal, this would be super strange that they would he would get such an honorable burial in a garden, in a tomb that no one had, been, had used before, with this kind of honor from Joseph and Nicodemus. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the, wicked, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. So he would receive a rich man's, he would be laid in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, and the point that Jesus is, that John is bringing is that this is exactly what you would do at the burial of a king, and that's the point. This was far more than was required for an ordinary burial, so Joseph and Nicodemus, these two secret by night disciples, are fulfilling scripture by their honor of Jesus. Coming out of the shadows, being willing to be identified with the one who had just been crucified. Coming out of the shadows at his death and giving him an honorable burial. So let me just conclude with a few things for us to think about. First of all, the king and his death and his resurrection is for everybody, not just for Israel. It's for everybody. The famous painting by Rembrandt called The Raising of the Cross, he painted it in 1633, It's a portrait of Jesus on the cross. It's the portrait of this moment right here. And if you look at the painting, there's a man in a blue turban who's actually Rembrandt himself. And everyone that looks at the painting is to realize that Rembrandt Rembrandt saw himself at the cross. And we're to see ourselves at the cross. Every single person should see themselves at the cross with John. It was my sin that Jesus is paying for And when he says, it is finished, that's for me. And when we're standing there, Jesus puts us into a new family. Care for one another. Love one another. The king, his death and his resurrection is for everybody. This is a lamb not just to deliver Israel, but to deliver all people. All of history, this is second, all of history, as demonstrated in the Old Testament, is funneling to this one moment of King Jesus on the Roman cross. All of history. Likewise, all of your life is funneling you to Jesus. You will stand before him one day. You will bow the knee to him one day. Those who bow to him in faith now will receive his reward. Those who refuse to do so will receive his judgment. All of human history is funneling you, not just to the cross, but one day to Christ in eternity. And what you do with Christ on the cross is going to determine what kind of verdict and experience you'll have when you see him then. Twelve times in the Old Testament, John quotes and alludes to the Old Testament in these short verses so that we would see that all of history and indeed all of our lives is to bring us to the point of the cross. And there we must determine what we will do with Jesus. Also, at the cross, Jesus is establishing not just a new and better kingdom, but a new and better family. A new and better family. We belong now to one another. A new and better family. This is why Jesus so many times says, you know, well, let me go bury my father and then I'll come follow you. He says, you let the dead bury their own dead, you follow me. It seems a bit harsh, but the reality is is there is a new and better kingdom and a new and better family that requires our allegiance. Next, the substitutionary atonement accomplished by the triune God on the cross is entirely sufficient to eternally and revocably resolve your sin problem. That was a big sentence. Substitution, meaning in your place. Atonement, meaning complete payment. Accomplished, meaning that Jesus did it, not you. It's not by your works, it's by his. By the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all cooperating together in this redemptive plan that Jesus himself is the face of, on the cross, that's the place where the redemption is found and purchased, is entirely sufficient, you don't have to add anything to it, to eternally, not just in the moment, but forever, and irrevocably, Christ will never lose his redeemed ones out of his hand, resolve your sin problem. Do you get that? By the substitutionary payment totally by Jesus, as orchestrated by the triune God, is entirely sufficient, eternally and irrevocably solves your sin problem. Is that not massive? It's huge. Jesus took your sinful place before a holy God. Your verdict of guilty was rendered against Jesus, God carried out of eternal death on Jesus. And now your record is completely clean. You are free forever to live without the weight and guilt of your sin hanging around your neck. That's the offer of the gospel. And King Jesus draws all of his servants out of the shadows to publicly and extravagantly honor him. See that? Joseph and Nicodemus came out of the shadows to not just kind of like throw some dirt on Jesus and kind of get him out of the way, but to honor him, to honor the sacrifice that's been made to publicly put themselves on the line, to go at great expense to honor the king who died for me. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. I love this. I want to close with this story. Freda van Hessen, one of Holland's most favorite opera singers, during a Nazi invasion, she was forced to go into hiding and survived, essentially, the Holocaust. This Jewish woman in the providence of God, she was spared, and at this point, she, became, she came into contact with someone who encouraged her to, uh, to think about Christianity. Just in case something bad happened to her again, it would be much better to be a Christian than to be a Jew, <laughs> not just for political reasons, but also because of what Jesus offers. He offers a better salvation than Judaism. And so uh, she ends up deciding to go ahead and have a conversation. She gets paired up with this woman named Elizabeth. And they begin to, to argue back and forth. They begin to meet and have these meetings and argue about the merits of Christianity and uh, Freda just thinks it's a big fairy tale. And six weeks after fruit, after six weeks of fruitless arguments, they decided that next week would be their last meeting. They're not getting anywhere. And so Elizabeth says to Freda, I want you to read two testaments from the Old Testament. I want you to read two chapters from the Old Testament and then I want us to talk about them and then we'll be done. We'll, we'll stop this fighting, right? These are your scriptures, Psalm 22 and Psalm 53. And here's what Frida writes in her own Frida what she writes in her own biography. 6 days went by and I could no longer procrastinate. I went to a small room in the house, closed the door and opened up the Bible. God in his wisdom had said to Elizabeth, tell her to read Psalm 22. I found it. And what did I see? The words my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I remembered that in Bach's, St. Matthew's passion, the basso is that how you say it? I don't know. Portraying the Lord singing, sings, oh, the bass, there we go, I just have a typo. The bass part, portraying the Lord sings, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Still in my rebellion, I said, what do you know? They stole it from Bach. Oh, God so wise, this finally got my attention. And now, wanting to continue reading to see what else had been stolen from Bach, Then I came to verse 16 and read, They pierced my hands and feet. Almost in shock, I literally yelled out, That's Jesus! I knew that Jesus died in that devastating way. The Jews stone people, but they don't crucify them. Crucifixion was a Roman death penalty. Yet David wrote Psalm 22, prophesying that this form of death hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented or practiced by the Romans. And then I read Isaiah 53. And I clearly understood that it described the whole crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Instantly, God had taken the blinders off my eyes and Satan was defeated. I called Elizabeth, who came over immediately, and together we read Isaiah 53. Then all of it became very clear to me, how he was despised and rejected of men. How he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How we hid our faces from him. And how he had been afflicted and wounded for our transgressions. And how with his stripes we are healed. I realized how all of us like sheep have gone astray. And how he died for our iniquities. Yes, for my sins too. I reasoned that if David and Isaiah both knew him. And Paul, a Jewish Pharisee, saw him and knew him. Then I needed no further proof. I accepted him too as my Lord and my Savior beautiful and that's where you're at today my friends i ask you to look at this ancient eyewitness account of this real historical yet supernatural event this testimony has stood the test of time fulfilled all the prophecies it's split our concept of time and has forever been reshaping human existence and you have two options You can pass by like so many travelers did on that dark day in Jerusalem. Just another interesting but misguided human who's killed for his strange ideas. Or this is God in the flesh. Coming to rescue humanity and establish a new heavens and a new kingdom. No one can decide for you whether you will bow the knee to Jesus or not. No one can repent of your sins for you before the crucified God man. No one can make you sell all that you have and follow him. I can lead you to water this morning, and I think I have, but only you can drink. I want to give you the moment right now in silence to think in your mind about what has been presented to you by John, by God through John, preserved for thousands of years so that you would hear it today, proclaimed to you as good news, and then before God and all of eternity, make your decision. Will you turn from your sins and trust in Him? Let's bow and let's pray. And let's spend a moment even right now before the crucified Savior Oh God, thank you for these words. Thank you for this accomplishment. I pray for my friends here that you would be opening eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. That we would see his payment as being our payment. That we would hear it is finished and know that that's talking about us and our sin before you. Lord, I pray that you'd give us repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who was lifted up for us In Jesus' name, amen.
2: You guys can stand. (laughs) Um, God's done quite a work and moved me this morning just listening to the message, and I just wanted to share with you something that he put on my heart. But I really hope you see how great God is how great his love is, how deep it is, and how wide it is, and how tall it is, and how inclusive it is, and how beautiful it is. He loves you. And I pray you find rest and peace in that grace and in that love. How beautiful is his majesty. And I pray you really behold it for what it really is. And I pray you know what peace is like. And that he rescues you from whatever you're going through this week, whatever you're going through in life in this time and season. That God loves you, no matter the circumstances. So I pray you know that. And I really need help this morning, Singing this last song. <laughs> it's uh, how deep the Father's love is for us. <laughs> I forgot. Have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give any.
0: normally have a Q&A time, but I think I'm just going to close this out. And so if there is any of you that need prayer or you have a question, uh, you can certainly send those to me and I'll be hanging out as well. And so we don't have to tear down today at all. So you have a little bit of extra time just to connect with one another. And I would encourage you to, um, uh, if you need someone to pray with you or you just have something you want to share with someone, um, don't, don't waste this opportunity to do that. So um, our um, benediction today comes from Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.